You're listening to episode 50 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogel. Today on the podcast, we have our second episode of the Scripture Can Teach You to Write series. Today, we'll be talking about how the author of First and Second Samuel keeps his audience's attention using a series of setups and payoffs in the story. The biblical stories of Samuel and David and Saul are some of the best narratives in Scripture, maybe in all of ancient writing. And there's a ton that you can learn about writing from them. Today, we're going to be looking at just one of those traits. And I hope it helps you as much as it helped me and not just my writing, but even my own life. As always, thanks for listening. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the current Pastor Writer book giveaway. This will be our third giveaway, and I love doing these. Um, First, we did the Ultimate Christian Writers giveaway, and then the complete collection of Eugene Peterson's works. And for the next two weeks, I'll be taking entries for the newly published Hebrew Bible, a three-volume box set of hardbacks with translations and commentary by Dr. Robert Alter. The collection published this past December, and I've been excited to get my hands on a copy. And I'm also including with it two of Robert Alter's groundbreaking works, The Art of Biblical Narrative and The Art of Biblical Poetry. I was first introduced to Alter's work through his translation and commentary of First and Second Samuel, which is important for today's episode in particular, and from which I'll be quoting on a couple of occasions. From there, I picked up Alter's Art of Biblical Narrative, and I found it to be a monumental work for both my preaching and also my study of biblical narrative. Alter's achievement has been demonstrating the remarkable literary quality of the Hebrew writers, and I owe a lot of my interest in biblical writing to his work. You can enter with just your name and email on the website, and as always, you can also earn additional entries for referring a friend, and I'm providing extra entries for those of you who are willing to subscribe to the podcast and also leave a review. You can find those instructions on the giveaway page. So for all the details, you can go to pastorwriter.com slash alter, A-L-T-E-R, or there'll be a link on the homepage of the Pastor Writer website, which you can find at pastorwriter.com. So get to entering, and I uh, hope maybe you're the one selected to win. With that, I want to dive into another writing tool that I've picked up from the biblical writers, this time from the author of the Samuel Scrolls. The story of Samuel and Saul and David running from 1 Samuel into the opening two chapters of 1 Kings is one of the greatest stories in history. I've spent quite a bit of time preaching and studying on these books. Um, I'm currently working on my own book centered around the tension between David's public and private lives. I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before, and I'm routinely impressed by the literary craft of these stories. There's a lot of examples we could turn to and a lot of lessons we could learn, but I want to look at a particular technique that I'll call the setup and payoff. Now, that's not really my phrase. Early on in my own writing, I worked with a writing coach named Mick Silva, who's been a previous guest on the podcast. Mick is currently a senior acquisitions editor of nonfiction at Zondervan. His coaching was invaluable to me. So much of his advice has continued to stick with me. He used to remind me of things like, good writing is good thinking. That was always an encouragement when I felt like my writing skills weren't as far as long as I wanted them to be. He also talked a lot about setups and payoffs, our topic for today. Everything you write is either setting up your reader or paying off something that you've already set up. It sounds easy, but it's a lot of pressure to get it right. Pretty easily, you can set things up that you don't have the chops to actually pay off at the end of the book. And equally, you can pay off things that end up falling flat because you haven't properly set them up and given them time to build in the reader's mind and interest. 
Every book, in some ways, is one big promise, one big setup, and one big payoff at the end. But those books also are made up of hundreds of more, worked into chapters and paragraphs and at times even sentences. What Mick was teaching me to see was how to keep a reader's interest and lead them into the full experience of the point that you're trying to make. When you get this right as a writer, it's an incredibly satisfying experience for the reader. But no reader wants to be endlessly drug on and on into more and more cliffhangers that never quite pan out. And most of us don't have time for books that fail to deliver on those promises quickly enough. Lest you think suspense and setup, these tricks are only the tricks of novelists and fiction writers, there may be no modern author who utilizes the setup better than nonfiction author Malcolm Gladwell. I recently took a master class where Gladwell explains many of his approaches to writing, the techniques that he used to accomplish his books. In the course material, this summary was given for how Gladwell keeps his readers' interests. I'll quote from it. Although you might associate suspense with action movies or thriller novels, Malcolm Gladwell's work shows how suspense-building techniques can apply to nonfiction as well. Gladwell begins with big ideas and questions, connecting them to unique characters and situations. According to Gladwell, narratives include the presentation and resolution of problems. In other words, you set up and solve. If your story features an element of suspense, try presenting questions, but no answers. You want your reader to ask why, and to keep turning the pages until you reveal the answer to them. Set up and solve is the phrase used by Gladwell. I'm convinced this is one of the Samuel author's favorite tricks, and I can show it to you, hopefully also helping you recognize how effective it can be in your own writing. Do you remember the biblical name Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth is hardly a primary character in the David stories. He's what most characterization studies would refer to as a tertiary character. Not primary, not secondary, but third. His role in the story is almost completely uncritical to the impact of the major plot points in David's life. But he is interwoven throughout almost the entire 2 Samuel story and has connections deep into 1 Samuel as well. The first mention of Mephibosheth comes in a strange and completely out-of-place verse. In 2 Samuel 4, we find David in the midst of a massive civil war. Judah had named him king after Saul, while the rest of Israel had rallied behind Saul's son Ishbosheth. Jonathan, the original heir to Saul's throne, had been killed in battle with his father. And at the center of the conflict are two seasoned generals, Joab leading David's army and Abner leading Ishbosheth's. In chapter 3, just before chapter 4, where we're quoting from, Abner was secretly assassinated by Joab. It's an action that even David laments. And with Abner's loss, Ishbosheth's power begins to falter, and he finds himself exposed and afraid. Before long, Ishbosheth, too, will be assassinated. Here's how it's recounted in 2 Samuel 4, reading again from Robert Alter's translation. And the son of Saul, this is Ishbosheth, heard that Abner had died in Hebron. And he was utterly shaken, and all Israel was dismayed. And the son of Saul had two men, commanders of raiding parties. The name of the one was Baanah, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Ramon, the Berathite, who was of the Benjamites, for Beeroth, too, was reckoned with Benjamin. And the Berathites fled to Gatam, and have been soldiers there until this day. If you'll allow me to, I'm now going to skip over one verse, verse 4, and keep on reading in verse 5. And the sons of Ramon, the Bitharite, Rechab and Baanah, 
went and came in the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his midday rest. And look, the woman who kept the gate had been gleaning wheat and nodded and fell asleep. And they came into the house as he was laying in his bed in his bedchamber. And they struck him and killed him and cut off his head and took his head and went off through the Arabah all night. And they brought Ishbosheth's head to David in Hebron. That story flows together perfectly, even though I skipped a verse. With Ishbosheth's death, Israel comes together behind David, and in chapter 5, the nation is finally united behind David as king. David is crowned the new king of Israel. The civil war comes to an end. But tucked into the middle of that story is a completely out-of-place verse. Right after learning of the names of these two assassins that will kill Ishbosheth, and just before they sneak into Ishbosheth's house, the story is interrupted with this strange sentence. Let me read it to you. And Jonathan, son of Saul, had a lame son. Five years old he was when the news of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse bore him off and fled. And it happened in her haste to flee that he fell and was crippled. And his name was Mephibosheth. The first mention of Mephibosheth in the story. Now, imagine you're watching a great action movie, which is what so much of First and Second Samuel is. You're at the scene in the action movie when a group of special forces are just about to conduct a night raid into the home of a terrorist. With their weapons drawn, their night vision on, the explosives placed on the locked door, the movie suddenly cuts to tell you about a relative, in this case a nephew of that terrorist, who happens to be living in a different town and oh by the way fell when he was a kid and is crippled. And then just like that, the scene snaps back to the explosion of the door being blown off of its hinges and gunfire erupting inside the compound. That's pretty much what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 4. We discover Mephibosheth in the middle of a completely unrelated assassination story. What this jarring interruption does, and you notice it especially if you're attempting to preach through these stories and you're forced to try and explain this weird interruption to a congregation knowing the rest of the Mephibosheth story to come, what it does is exactly what Malcolm Gladwell says he tries to do in setting up his readers. The reader is left really forced to ask the question, why? Why is this here? Why do we need to know this right now? Why is this important for the story that we're reading? We've assumed that with Ishbosheth's death about to play out in this assassination, it will be an end of Saul's dynasty, and the end of the civil war, the competition for the throne that he had left. But just before the assassin swords decapitate Ishbosheth in his own bed, we're told about another descendant, a son of Jonathan himself, in fact. The narrator has let us in on a detail none of the other characters in the story realize. We've assumed that David and Jonathan's story ended with Jonathan's death at Mount Gilboa. Ishbosheth's death will bring Saul's story and all of his family's fight for Israel to a dramatic end. But we're tossed this little breadcrumb of Mephibosheth. Is the civil war really over? Is Saul's house actually finished? What's with the detail of this crippled disability, the story about him being dropped and now disabled? Learning that Jonathan had a son also brings up another memory for the reader. It's one of the most moving moments in the entire David story, and if you've read the story well, you remember it. David is forced to flee from Saul, who's pursuing him, attempting to take his life. And in the final moment before he leaves, David and Jonathan come together for their final goodbyes. It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 20. I'm going to read a little bit, starting in verse 41. 
And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between you and me, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Now that's a really good setup. The Lord shall be between you and me fits perfectly into this moment. But the phrase, and between my offspring and your offspring forever, now that's a setup for something that must be coming later in the story. It's subtle, but it opens up another question. Will these two friends ever be reunited? When Jonathan was struck down by the Philistines, we assume not. But then there's the second half of that promise. Well, what about their offspring? The promise that their offspring would be together forever. It's a setup, one which ends up paying off and yet setting up another as we learn that there is actually a descendant of Jonathan to which this promise can be fulfilled. Payoff. But then a new setup. He's crippled. And so far, things have not been going well for the descendants of Saul like Ishbosheth. In fact, we learn about Mephibosheth in the middle of his uncle's nighttime elimination. The careful reader is left with an unanswered question. It's tantalizing because as the reader, we're the only ones who are in on the secret. David doesn't yet know about Mephibosheth, but we're left wondering, could David still fulfill his promise to Jonathan through this heir? Time for another setup. With David now named king, he sets about consolidating his power. These stories are jammed together in a quick couple of chapters, moving quickly as David accumulates his new image, his new power as ruler. David defeats the Philistines, he conquers Jerusalem, he builds a palace for himself out of luxurious materials, expensive cedar wood, he negotiates for his old wife Michal back, he brings the ark out of hiding and into the city and attempts to build a temple around it. But in the middle of these stories, the author drops another crumb in the Mephibosheth story. It's actually a fascinating one. Here's the story of David capturing Jerusalem and turning it into his new capital city in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. Now, that passage has confused a lot of people. The scholars' best guess is that the Jebusites were lining their city walls with blind and lame citizens as a way of mocking David, a way of saying that even their weakest could beat him back. The ESV translation I read from smooths out David's words in that story. But in reality, David's response is broken and jarring and confusing. Alter translates David's words as, And David said on that day, Whoever strikes down the Jebusites and reaches the conduit, and the lame and the blind utterly despised by David, dot, dot, dot. It's not a complete sentence in Alter's translation. It's interrupted by ellipsis. It's an attempt to capture the jarring and unfinished condemnation of David's half-sentence dialogue. Some commentators have come to the conclusion that at some point in history, a scribal heir must have lost the second half of the sentence. 
the book of Chronicles actually goes through the process of smoothing it out by informing us that whoever reaches through the conduit and cuts down the blind and the lame will be rewarded a position as commander in the army. But I think the interruption here in 2 Samuel is actually intended. The stammering half-sentence is an integral part of what is trying to be characterized about David. It forces us to pause, stops us from our reading for a moment, and realizes just what David has said. Hated by David's soul is the phrase. Or, as it could be translated, David hated them with his whole body. That's not something to read over quickly. It's a pretty profound sentence, especially given the setups that have come before it. Plus, it sounds so unlike David. It's obviously David speaking rashly, without much thought, an emotion that springs up and instantly is put into words, and in this case, a promise. No blind or lame will be allowed in my city, in my house. We're then told that it's for this reason, David's hatred, we presume, that no blind or lame person was allowed into David's house. What house is that? The next verse tells us that David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. In other words, David seems to have built a tradition around Jerusalem and around his palace in particular that no blind or lame person would be allowed in. What David was doing in this quick compilation of achievements was building out his perfect royal city and administration. Maybe it was just the mockery of the Jebusites belittling him, or maybe it was some underlying disgust at the physical deformity, or maybe it was just an attempt to fill his home, his city, with the most perfect people and possessions. But for whatever reason, the words are left remembered. The words most passionately said in the story are David's hatred for the lame, and they will not be permitted in his city. Again, some commentators say that this detail is given as an explanation for some later tradition around temple priesthood and the exclusion of those disabled participants, but I think they've missed the setups in the story and then the literary quality of what's being told. David's oath that he would not allow any lame person in the palace ratchets up the beats of the Mephibosheth story. David still doesn't know about Mephibosheth or his lameness like we do. We know David has promised his love to Jonathan's descendants. We know now that Jonathan still has a living descendant. We know that that son is lame, crippled. And now we know that David has just made a promise to keep such people out of his city and out of his home. David has made two conflicting promises. Set up, set up, set up. And with each one, the tension, the question left unanswered, grows greater and greater. And all of this has been set up by dropping pieces of information across several chapters that for the careful reader builds greater and greater tension and suspense into the story. Now, if you know the Mephibosheth story, you know where this is all leading. With his wives and his palaces and his cities, his power all secured around him, David apparently got reminiscent. His newfound crown forced him to recall that it had been Jonathan who was the very first to recognize his right to rule. It got David wondering about that moment, that goodbye, that friendship, that covenant between them. And it got him wondering about if there were any descendants left of Jonathan whom he could bless. The story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And the king David said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And his servant replied, There is still a son of Jonathan. 
he is crippled in his feet. The simplicity of that sentence is perfect. We've been set up for seven chapters to understand just what is being said in those simple words. The punch of the single phrase, crippled in both feet, is writing at its best. Then the author delays the conclusion. We're told that Mephibosheth is in hiding in a place called Lodabar, a town whose name literally means no harvest or no word or nothing. David calls for Mephibosheth, but without informing us of his intentions. Mephibosheth comes and throws himself down at David's feet, obviously afraid for his life, as we the reader are from all the setups that have come previously. So David speaks, with far more tension built into this moment than just the last few sentences. It's been built in over chapters of setups. We've been set up for just this moment. And David says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all of the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And the chapter ends, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. I take that last sentence to be a kind of wink to the reader. A way for the author to say, do you see what I did there? All of the setups pay off in this final line. He ate at the king's table always. And don't forget, this is the Mephibosheth who was lame in both his feet. There's something so massively satisfying in the ending, especially given David's hatred, now balanced by Hesed, his loving kindness. It's moments like this that make us really resonate, connect, and love David. He's so much like us, but then at times like us at our worst and also like us at our potential best. I could keep going with the Mephibosheth story and seeing how the author continues to set up and pay off. You could go on to see how wrapping up this portion of Mephibosheth's story, we're also introduced to a new character, Ziba, a servant, who will turn out to betray Mephibosheth. The setups keep coming, the payoffs keep coming, and the story keeps building in complexity. But hopefully we've done enough to show you how expertly the Samuel author uses this effect. If you think I've made a lot out of little... Go see all of the places this technique is used all over the Samuel story. For instance, Doag at Nob before the priest Ahimelech in 1 Samuel 21. Or see how it's used of Saul's rash oath about fasting before his army in 1 Samuel 14. This setup and payoff technique is worth learning to recognize in the biblical writers, but also worth taking the time to master in your own writing. It's easy to understand, but it takes practice and taste to do it well. Ask a lot of questions, get the reader invested in those questions, and then hold off the answer as long as you possibly can. Keep upping the stakes of the question as you move forward, and know how long you can keep the tension built, and when it's just the right time, answer the question in a way that the reader hadn't seen coming. Mephibosheth is a great example of exactly how you can use this tactic. But there's one other lesson that I think is worth pointing out from this David and Mephibosheth story. Maybe the real point, the point of all of this tension and setup, the final payoff in this story, is the realization that David must be careful about how quickly he speaks. And by seeing it, we too are instructed, be careful about how quickly you speak. Be even more careful about the motives which move you to speak. David's curse against the blind and the lame turns out to be foolish, and it turns out to be counter to the character that makes him his best. As writers, it's a warning we should take very seriously. 
Nothing plays better than the quick comment mocking the defeated or the tweet that throws someone under the bus. But nothing looks more foolish than to take back those same words when we realize we've condemned the very one that we've been called to love. It's a lesson that David will continually struggle to learn. Consider how quickly he condemned the rich man who had taken his neighbor's sheep, only to realize through the poignant and damning words of Nathan, you are the man, just two words in Hebrew, you're him. Maybe the greatest lesson you can learn from Samuel's setups and payoffs in the Mephibosheth story is to speak slowly, write slowly, test your motives, know what moves your tongue and your pen. And if it's worth saying, it's worth taking the time to set up and pay off. As always, you can find show notes for this episode by going to pastorwriter.com slash 50. While there, you also have the opportunity to sign up for the Robert Alter collection that'll be running through the middle of February. If you haven't already signed up, make sure and take advantage of it. I know somebody's going to be excited to be able to win these books. Also, while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. It's the best way for me to get feedback about the show and for others to learn about it. And as always, thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you.